Amen. Our gospel reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 and continuing to verse 12. Please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd... They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man As authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, as we pause now to give attention to this, your word from Mark chapter 2, we would ask even more importantly that you would give attention to us. We ask that you would take this word as Uh, your attention, and that you would show it to us through the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, and that it would be to us like manna from heaven. It would be the very bread of life to us, and we would see within this wonderful word the marvelous face of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, that we might even hear from him afresh today, saying to his people, son and daughter, You are forgiven. Meet us here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, contrary to popular opinion, we've made it to Mark chapter 2. We've been in Mark chapter 1 for quite some time, if you're visiting with us this morning. I don't remember how many weeks, I didn't go back and count it, but it was, it was several because we were savoring it, savoring Mark chapter 1 together, a beautiful intro to this fast-moving, uh, full-of-action, uh, gospel-packed book known as Mark. 
And one of the marks of this gospel, especially its intro, is um, how exciting the ministry of Jesus is. Especially there in Mark chapter 1, everyone is thrilled. Everyone is excited with the ministry of Jesus. He bursts on the scene there in chapter 1, uh, preaching there in the synagogue, not like one of the teachers of the law, but one who preached with authority, and then goes forth and begins to heal and begins to perform miracles. And he, he's like the first celebrity preacher of mankind. Everywhere he went, the mob followed him, even as he was in Capernaum staying at Simon Peter's house where he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. We know, as we've seen in the previous chapter, they came beating down the door, bringing all of their sick, all of their demon-possessed, anyone with needs to speak to Jesus. And in fact, his, his popularity grew so much that he had to remove himself we actually learned that at the end of chapter 1. He had to remove himself from the cities. He couldn't go anywhere. His name was a household name now. And he's been in the desolate places. He's been in the wilderness. And now as we enter in to Mark chapter 2, he's come back into Capernaum. Likely here, come back into um, the, the very um, house of Simon. Uh, come back to the very house where he performed those original miracles. And as he does so, as this story unfolds, we see something different in Jesus' ministry. We haven't seen this yet. Mark 2 opens up with controversy. And we're going to see a lot of controversy as we follow the life of Jesus. A lot of people, mainly religious leaders, arguing and haggling over Jesus' words and Jesus' actions and whether he's obeying the law and keeping the tradition and the commandments. And this is the first of the stories about Jesus' ministry where controversy is sparked. And if you, were, if you actually have your Bibles open to Mark chapter 2, you could look on down and look at the next passage in his call of Levi and you see that they're questioning him about why he eats with sinners and tax collectors. And then in the next story, they, they question him about why his disciples don't fast like all of the other disciples of the religious leaders. And then in the next story, they question him about why his disciples don't keep the Sabbath in the way that they ought to keep the Sabbath. It's one story after another of controversy. And all of the controversy is actually circling around the question, who is this man? And what has he come to do? And does he have the authority to do the things that he's doing? To say the things that he's saying? That's actually the very question of the text that's before us here in the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2. Jesus actually summarizes the nub of the issue there in verse 10 when he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. That you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to the paralytic, rise, take up your mat, and go home. It's a question of authority. You'll see that the scribes actually raised that question of authority in their early uh, internal reflections and machinations about Jesus' words. Notice there in verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. That is to say, he is acting like he is God. 
Like he has an authority that's not his. He's being sacrilegious in the way that he's throwing around words. He is blaspheming. Doesn't he know that only God can forgive sins? Oh, I'd like to suggest he knows that. The question in the scribes' minds, the question that Jesus addresses there in verse 10, is does he have the authority to forgive sins? Now what we want to do under the the rubric of authority under this notion of Jesus' authority to forgive sins is really unpack this idea of forgiveness and why authority in the discussion of forgiveness is so critical. And it's likely that we've not often thought about it because we're fairly flippant with our apologies, aren't we, and our give and takes in forgivenesses. Oh, it really doesn't matter all that much. Oh, yeah, I didn't think anything about it. Oh, just forget it. We act like the things we do against one another and against God are small matters oftentimes. We let them sort of roll off our back or at least act like we do. While, truth be told, too often than we would like to admit, we nurse a little resentment. And we know that the grace of forgiveness, the deep grace of forgiveness, has not really invaded powerfully our hearts And the question comes here, how do we gain the freedom of soul that is truly know its identity and status as a forgiven one? Because what Jesus has come to say to each and every one of you, if you are a follower of him, and today if you have not yet embraced and committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's coming to you in your needs and he's saying, son and daughter, give your life away to me. I will forgive you. Of your sins. In light of this call, I want to look at this passage with you in three ways this morning. I want you to see the priority of forgiveness. I want you to see the priority of forgiveness. And then secondly, I want you to see the proof of forgiveness. That it really does happen. And then thirdly, I want you to see the price of forgiveness. I want you to see the priority to see the proof, and I want you to see the price of forgiveness. And I believe if we see all those three things clearly, I think this is what will happen in our own souls. The preciousness of forgiveness will be ours. We'll see it. Let's start with this priority of forgiveness. Here is, here is Jesus back in Capernaum. It's been reported, you know, the scouts have gone out. He's back in town. Let's go bombard him again. Let's bring all of our sick. Let's bring all of our ailing to him. But actually what we find him doing is what he said he was committed to doing, why he left Capernaum in the first place to go to the other cities in Galilee. We find him there in the house likely of Simon Peter preaching, we're told, the word. He's come to declare the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. And as he is preaching the word with a jam-packed house spilling out of the doorway into uh, the outside, there is um, a racket above his head. Dirt particles begin to fall upon his robe. Uh, Leaves and sticks and twigs. and, and, And then before you know it, a little peak of light begins to shine through the roof as these four men come with this paralytic who they have tried to get into the presence of the Lord. I mean, we should remember their plan A was to come through the door. But plan A didn't work out. And unlike many of us, they were undeterred by this and went up to the top of the roof and began to peel away the roof. They 
They so loved their friends and they had such faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to heal him that they were willing to risk vandalism charges in order to get him into the presence of the Lord. And there he is. He comes down out of, as it were, the heavens um, below to Jesus. An amazing sight. You might half expect a scold here or there. I wonder in the back of my mind, what's Simon Peter thinking? I mean, this is his personal residence after all. Um, you know, is he drawing up the papers for some charges? None of those things are entertained, of course, in the text. Because the text wants us to focus in upon Jesus and this paralytic. And when we see Jesus begin to focus upon this paralytic, we see the pre- most precious words that are spoken in this text are in that moment rehearsed. And they're surprising, I would suggest to you. Uh, he looks at the paralytic and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, if, if you would for just a minute, go ahead and, go ahead and be the paralytic. Get, get on that mat. You can't get in his shoes. He's not walking, so you got to get on the mat. Get on the mat. He's been lowered down into the room. And the first words, out of all this anticipation of coming to Jesus, after exhausting all the resources of doctors and physicians and nurses and witch doctors, who knows what all else, to try to overcome paralyzation, now the final hope, he's come to Jesus, that he will be healed from his paralyzation. And the words that come out of the mouth of Jesus are, Son, your sins are forgiven. Can I be that paralytic for just a second? Well, gee, um, thanks. I, um, I don't, I don't, this is unexpected. I I didn't anticipate, um, this is more than I bargained for when, when I, when I showed up here, but, um, Mr. Jesus, if, if I may, um, there's actually another, another reason that I, I came, uh, today to this place and, and the whole sin thing, and forget it, that's awesome. But um, so, I'd like to walk. I'd really like to walk. I mean, that really seems right. It feels like Jesus misses the point in the midst of the, of the text. That there's a more obvious need, if we can put it in that way, and that this man has come and his friends have brought him with such urgency. I don't think it's... Um, unfaithful to imagine that this man is in a desperate condition based upon the way that these men have, have acted. They feel like the window is maybe short, maybe even for a survival. Who knows? And he comes in the moment of that urgency and Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now I'd like to ask the question because I think it's pertinent. I think it's actually quite pertinent. Um, didn't hit me until... Uh, this week in study of how appropriate it is to ask this question, especially during a season of, well, like we've been through and are going through of COVID-19, of a pandemic that has captured our minds and hearts and imaginations and patterns and communities and nation. To ask the question, is Jesus suggesting, by, by this being his lead statement, to the paralytic, is he suggesting that this man is paralyzed as a direct result of some sin that he's committed? Could it be that Jesus, in focusing upon sin, 
in the midst of a sickness or an ailment or a disease is suggesting that there is a one-to-one correlation between what this man is experiencing physically tied to what this man may have done spiritually. Well, maybe I should ask it more generally. Is, Is there any indication in the Bible that sickness or ailment or physical difficulty is connected in any way, shape, or form to to sin or to wrongdoing? The answer is yes. In Exodus, as one example, Exodus 15, 26, Jesus speaking to the people of Israel says, Diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Obey that which is right in His eyes and give to His commandments and keep all of His statutes. And if you do this, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. Now by implication, of course, he's arguing that faithfulness will deter or keep away Sickness and diseases, that's the assumption, the implied reality behind Exodus chapter 15. So there's at least some scriptural evidence of a connection between sickness and sin. But you're probably thinking, right, I know you, you're thinking of Nebuchadnezzar, aren't you? Oh, that's a great example too. A man who was rebellious. A man who had nothing to do with Yahweh, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And Yahweh, with his own hand brought upon Nebuchadnezzar a kind of insanity, removed from him his mind and his faculties to the degree that he ate like a beast in the field, like an ox chewing on grass for seven years. And when was he restored? And how was he restored? When he repented. When he acknowledged God. He got better mentally, physically. Emotionally, he was restored when he made the trek spiritually from his sin unto God. Physical sickness, mental illness, emotional struggles, these kinds of things can be directly related to sin. Now now notice what I said. Can be. Hopefully you hear the implication in that. Let me, let me tease it out. Is sickness always the result of sin? No. Sickness is not always the result of sin. We might even go so far as to say most of the time it is likely not the result of sin. So all of you allergy strugglers in here this morning. Sniffling. <laughs> I should have stayed longer in confession, I I think, that something to deal with. Now, here's the reality. Each time that there is sickness or ailment that comes, we should definitely do soul searching, shouldn't we? we? We should definitely pay attention. We should always be paying attention to our soul and recognize that the Lord might be using a weakness of frame and physicality to drive us to Him and might be wanting to expose something in our lives and our heart. This is not beyond the way He has acted. We should be mindful of that. And yet at the same time, we shouldn't in every sickness and every particle of of contamination and bacteria begin to think that there's some sin lurking underneath it. In fact, Jesus warns against this right in John chapter 9 when his disciples come to him and there's this, this blind man and this blind boy and their question to Jesus is, uh, so... Um, Is he blind because he did something wrong or because his parents did something wrong? 
Hear the, hear the assumption? Did, did he do something wrong? Did he sin? Is that why he's blind? Or is it is his parents? Because those are the only two options. See, a one-to-one correlation between sickness and sin. And remember what Jesus said. Jesus actually tells us exactly why this, this boy is blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. It's helpful. But this happened, this blindness happened, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. The works of God. This man is blind for the glory of God. That the power of God would be demonstrated in and through him. It wasn't connected to his sin, nor his parents' sin. So I think it's important for us to realize that there is a complication. Because, right, you're going to have people go, COVID-19 is a judgment from the Lord. Have you heard that? Some of you are going, yeah, it is. Some of you are going, I'm not sure. Is it possible that it could be? According to the Bible, it's possible that it could be. Is it necessarily, certainly a judgment from the Lord? We have no certainty of that. What do we know God is doing? He's after our hearts. He's after our hearts. What is He after in this particular passage? He's after this man. He's after this man. Because what Jesus is actually teaching us in this passage, more than anything else, is He's connecting what the Old Testament assumes over and over and over again, is that there is a direct relationship between sickness and sin. Not necessarily that we have sinned and therefore we're sick, but that the only reason we ever get sick is because we're sinners. Now that is true, my friends, all the time. That is true all the time. The only reason we ever get sick is because we are sinners. We live in a broken, fallen body. You see, Adam and Eve didn't have to worry about that before the fall. They didn't fight allergies. They didn't get a cold. Their mind and their emotions and their body and their soul was in perfect working order as they communed with Almighty God. But after Genesis 3, people get sick. And here's here's the big secret revealed. And it really is something that you should reflect on and take to the Lord. Is that each time you and I get the sniffles, it's a reminder that we are not as we were designed to be. We're sick. And we're sinners. We're fallen. What Jesus is doing when he says to this man, Son, your sins are forgiven, is he is tracing the reality of his sickness all the way to its root. All the way to its root. He is getting underneath it all. And he's letting us know at a fundamental level that the priority of this man's healing is not rise and walk. The priority of this man's healing is, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I said in the early service, do you realize that every death certificate lies? Some of you are going, yeah, they're forging those death certificates with COVID-19 and it makes me so mad. I'm so upset about it, right? No, I'm not going there with you. Every death certificate lies. What do I mean by that? No one has ever just died of cancer. No one has ever died of COVID-19, just COVID-19. Everyone dies because they're sinners. That's what Jesus is teaching us. You don't don't die of a physical condition. You die of a spiritual reality. 
the fact that we are sinners and we are fallen, when he is here speaking to this, this man on the mat, he is communicating the priority of forgiveness. He is actually, he's actually telling us this. You know, you thought that this text was about the miracle of a man standing up from being paralyzed. You know the miracle of this text? Son, your sins are forgiven. That's the miracle of this text. This is the work that Jesus has come to do. He is most gracious. He is most compassionate. He is most loving. Not when he raises up this man. But when he gets to the root of the reason the man was ever laying down in the first place. Which was because he, as well as us, are sinners. Now, let's look secondly at the proof of forgiveness. The proof of forgiveness. See, the scribes don't like this. They don't like this. The scribes, right? They know the Old Testament like the back of their hand. They're schooled in it. They're scholars. They're experts in the law. And when they hear Jesus say, Son, your sins are forgiven, this triggers, as it ought to, um, many theological bells. <laughs> Goes off. They go off in the minds of the scribes. Now, listen, listen to this closely because I'm not probably going to say this much, if ever again, in the study of, of the Gospel of, of Mark. The scribes are right. Right? The scribes are right. They're right in this. That the question is, where does this man get the authority to say your sins are forgiven? Doesn't he know that only God can forgive sins? Right? And you as the reader, you kind of go, yeah, I think yeah, he gets that. But, yeah, you know, that, that's sort of, that's the narrative. That's how the narrative is drawing you into it. That's how Mark is, is telling us here. And what, what we actually see is they get the principle of the problem of Jesus' words. They just totally misunderstood his person. They don't know who he is. They made assumptions about who he is and they're wrong. But the principle of what it is that they're concerned about is absolutely right. Well, well think, think, of this, think of it this way. I mean, you can't, right? you can't hold, you can't forgive someone of something if they have not offended you. Uh, let me give an illustration in this regard. If someone comes in and robs the Sheridan's house, God forbid... Someone comes in and robs the Sheridan's house, and this person is, is caught. And uh, they're, they're brought to us. We have several lines that, uh, that we can go. We can press charges and pursue justice and get our stuff back or some kind of uh, remuneration. And there's a lot of appropriateness with regard to the consequences of sin, etc. We can also say this, I forgive you. I forgive you. We can also say that, which is to say, keep it all. It's okay. I'm not going to press charges. We'll call it equal. Now, let's use the, that same illustration and, and change the characters a little bit. Let, your house gets robbed. I don't want my house robbed anyway. So your house gets robbed. <laughs> but you call me because I'm, I'm your pastor and you go, hey, come over. Let's pray. Let's figure you know, So I'm there and we catch the guy who did it. Okay. He shows up, and we're there, and I'm standing with you, and all your stuff is gone. And, 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 and I turn to him, the guy who robbed you, and I say to him, listen, I forgive you for what you did. And you're looking at me like, 
No, wait, 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 wait. I... I, I think you, you've, you've got a role reversed here. Like, no, you didn't lose anything. <laughs> right, right. I don't have the right, right? That's what you're, I don't have the authority to say, I forgive you. Because why? I didn't receive the offense. Only the person who receives the offense is the person who has the right to be able to say, I forgive you. Do you see what Jesus is doing? When Jesus says to this man, son, your sins are forgiven, he is making a huge assumption. And the assumption that he is making is this. All the sins that you have ever done have been against me. They've all been against me. And I want you to know, the thing I want you to know more than the legs... More than walking and rising, because listen, this body is going to die anyway. What I want you to know is, son, you are forgiven of your sins. Now, now the scribes know that when he says that, he is making a massive claim. That's why they say, don't they? Doesn't he know only God can forgive? But of course, that's what David tells us in Psalm 51, doesn't he? After he kills Uriah and commits adultery with Bathsheba. He writes in Psalm 51, I have sinned against you, God, and I've sinned against you alone. All of the sins, when we run them up the flagpole of all of the offenses to everyone that also is affected, is the ultimate and most foundational offense is Almighty God Himself. And when Jesus here claims that your sins are forgiven... He recognizes and is acknowledging that He is God and that He is Savior. He is the one who has been offended by everything that this man has ever done and everything that any of us have ever done. And He's the only one that can say, You are forgiven. You are forgiven. Now, he hears the questions in the hearts of the scribes, right? It's not a dialogue. It's internal. They're questioning in their heart. They're connecting all the theological dots. And he decides to bring the internal to the external. He speaks to what's going on in their hearts. And he says, why is it that you're questioning these things? And he puts them, in a very real sense, something of what he does regularly in a kind of dilemma, a kind of counter-question. He says to them, I want to pose something to you as a demonstration of proof. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and go home? Which is easier? Okay. Now, I want you to read that question correctly, because apparently not scholars have missed this, at least a good number of them, it seemed, this week. Uh, it seemed that way. Um, he's not actually asking the question, which is easier? Which is easier? Do, do, raising this paralyzed man or forgiving his sins? It's really not what he's asking. Now, I have an answer to that question. I, I think it actually is shown over the course of the Gospel of Mark. But notice the nature of the question. Is it easier to say... To say, so a man comes to you with great need, and he's paralyzed, 
He's standing before you. What would be easier for you to say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Or, rise up and walk. I'll tell you which would be easier for me. It would be a lot easier to say to the man, God loves you. Your sins are forgiven. Let's, let's go to lunch. Um, you know, somebody get him so we can just you know, go to lunch. Because you, know you know what I sense at that moment? My resources are done. My, my, I've exhausted my capacities in that moment. There's no need for demonstrable verification. There's no need for it. There's no way to demonstrate that or to verify that in this moment. It's just a truth and a reality. And so Jesus says, which is easier to say? Well, that's easier to say. That's easier to communicate. But so that you'll know that I have the power to do what's easier, I'm going to go ahead and do what's harder. That's what Jesus is saying. Man, rise up, take your mat, and go home. And the man, we're told, gets up, takes his mat, and, and it's like a parade in front of all of them. It says, you know, in front of all of them, right? He walks out and he makes his way home. In effect, he's saying, because I have demonstrated what is harder to say and to do in this moment, it leaves you with the proof, or at least a strong, intuitive, convincing, and persuasive inclination that I might just be able to do the other two. I might just be able to do the other two. The proof of forgiveness. The priority of forgiveness, the proof of forgiveness, and thirdly, the price of forgiveness. Now, maybe one of you in your own mind right now is saying something like, well, it's right, it's easy to say something and it's harder to, to do that thing. Okay, even if, okay, let's just say he's a miracle worker, right? He's, he's a witch doctor of some sort and he was able to harness the powers of darkness to make this man rise in order to gain power for himself. Maybe that's the sourcing. Maybe that's going on in your own um, mind. So to say something, even to do something like that, doesn't necessarily mean that you can forgive sins. But I want you to see that the words of God are fundamentally different than, than our words. And this leads us to the price of forgiveness. The price of forgiveness. You see, the words in the mouth of someone with authority do not merely speak to the realities. But the words in the mouth of someone with authority actually accomplish the reality it speaks to. Let me give you an illustration of that. So yesterday I got a chance to do a wedding. I love doing weddings. It's great to see that happy couple, you know, beaming at the front of the church, ready to give their life away uh, to one another. And that was that moment yesterday. And at the end of the service, right there at the end, you know these words really well, right? The, the preacher says, by virtue of the authority committed to me by the church of Jesus Christ, I pronounce you husband and wife. Now, 
in that covenant-making ceremony that's happening at a wedding, the status of those individuals is literally changing with words. With words. The power of the spoken word actually accomplishes, actually affects the reality that it speaks to. It's similar when a judge sits over a court case, sees all of the evidence, and then goes, guilty. In that moment, the status of that individual literally changes. Or not guilty, it literally changes or it solidifies the very identity of that individual. The words themselves actually accomplish the reality of the thing. Here's the deal. We have a few moments in our lives that actually operate like that if a person is appropriately acting in authority. Like when I pronounced yesterday, husband and wife, I didn't do that because I have some magic mojo in my soul that nobody else has. I said, by virtue of the authority committed to me by the church of Jesus Christ. I'm operating in delegated and submissive authority, but these words as they're spoken actually bring about and solidify the reality of which they're spoken to. Listen, here's the reality that's here and why this is so important. Is that when Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. The words that he's speaking in that moment are like every word that God ever speaks. When God speaks, all of his words are with ultimate authority, accomplishing the very thing that he speaks. At the beginning of the foundation of the world, when he said, let there be light, what happened? Light appeared. His words are His work. They are His work. He is the Word made flesh. He has come as the one who has spoken creation into being. He is coming as the one who is redeeming creation from its fallenness. When He says to this man, Son, your sins are forgiven. He is accomplishing that reality on the spot. And you know what else he's doing? He's pointing to the only way that he can accomplish the words that he just spoke. And the only way that he can accomplish the words that he just spoke is by going to the cross. You know what's remarkable is by Mark 2... In the first few verses, we know that Jesus will accomplish his mission. We know he'll accomplish his mission. And the reason we know this is that God cannot lie. He has spoken, you are forgiven. And there's no way to forgive this man unless somebody pays for this man's sin. And the only someone who can pay for this man's sin is the one who this man offended. And who did this man offend? God, and who is Jesus? God in Savior form. 
He is committing in this moment by speaking these words that one day he will be the one, as it were, laying on the mat with the effects of sin ravaged his body, as it were. As he took the charge of this man's sin and our sin upon himself. He's already committing with those words to say for certain that I will not be found a liar. I will go all the way to the cross for you. He, in other words, is saying to this man, though I could bring heaven and earth and all of the wrath of my Father to crush you, And all of it would be righteous for all the ways that you have distorted my character and my glory. For all the ways you have robbed from me and cheated from me. For all the ways that you have shunned me and shaken your fist at me. He could bring heaven and earth and all of the wrath of the judgment of God upon this man. But instead, he says, for everything that you have done and for everything that you will do, I... I will take the blow. I will take the blow. Listen, forgiveness is no small thing, friends. In your homes, when children, you say, I'm sorry to one another, and will you forgive me? This is no small thing when we say, I forgive you. We're actually saying very clearly in those moments, I will take the blow. I won't hold it against you. I want to welcome you into my family. I want us to be reconciled. I want us to be one. He calls him son. Son, your sins are forgiven. You're part of my family. I'm welcoming you and I'm reconciling you. The problem has never been the paralyzation. The problem has always been to the sin underneath the paralyzation. The disease underneath the disease. Friends, listen, every time that you get sick (laughs) and you realize the brokenness and the fallenness of your body, and you know what you feel very often? We feel awkward when we're sick. Don't you feel that little tinge of embarrassment when you're sick? Like, I'm weak. (laughs) I wish I wasn't weak. You know why you feel that? Because you were never supposed to be sick. But each time you deny it, And act like you're strong. You push off your neediness. Instead of running to the one who can meet the need. Jesus wants you to know. It's evidence of your brokenness and your fallenness. But he has come as the savior of the world. And he is saying to you. If you open your heart to him and trust in faith. Son and daughter. Your sins are forgiven. And because I've taken away the sins. I will one day make you entirely whole. The same word that Mark uses here to describe the paralytics rising. Rise, take your mat and go home. Is the exact same word that will be used of Jesus at the resurrection. And isn't that what he did? He rose and he went home. And you know what he's going to do with you? You're going to rise and go home. If you have trusted in Christ, you're going to rise and go home. He wants you to know, hold tight. Stand strong in Him. Son and daughter of the faith, your sins are forgiven. 
And then one day soon, you'll hear rise and go home. Father in heaven, we would ask right now that you would confirm the power of these words and truths and realities upon the hearts of all of us. And that we would find ourselves increasingly captured by their power as we walk by faith and not by sight. Lord Jesus, we're listening as you speak to us. You are forgiven of your sins. This we ask in your holy name. Amen.